Welcome to the Indigenous Approach Podcast. I'm Major Dan Lassard, the Public Affairs Officer for First Special Forces Command and host for today's episode. We're about to play for you my conversation with Master Sergeant Earl Plumley, who recently received the Medal of Honor from President Biden for his actions at Fob Gosney in 2013. But first, I wanted to mention our upcoming episode. We brought in Dr. Lisa Miller to talk about spirituality and its importance to our overall health and success. Joining her are Colonel Jamie Reesberg, the command surgeon, and Chaplain Brandon Moore, the first SFC command chaplain. It's a great conversation that will give you some practical things you can do now to awaken your brain and strengthen your spiritual core. So be on the lookout for that conversation. Now, let's get into this episode, where I joined Master Sergeant Earl Plumley via Zoom for his reflections as a new Medal of Honor recipient. All right, Master Sergeant Earl Plumley, welcome to the Indigenous Approach Podcast. We are incredibly honored to have you on today's show. Uh, you know, thank you very much. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, we spent some time together uh, at the media day, uh, which was the day prior to you receiving uh, the medal. Uh, and it was really a whirlwind from when you and your family touched down at the airport and, uh, you know, a bunch of media interviews. And then you went to the White House and you had the uh, Hall of Heroes event. And it probably hasn't slowed down a whole lot. But has the whirlwind stopped for you? Yeah, uh, we got back here and I got back in my uh, team room and uh, it, it went back to, to pretty much normal uh, fairly rapidly. <laughs> and I'm, I'm back to running my team and uh, being a Green Beret again, which is very refreshing. Like you said, you know, the, the time in D.C. was a whirlwind. It, I, I felt like I was there for about a month. It was, in fact, only uh, five or six days. So what what was it like for you to receive that honor? My opinion hasn't changed on that. It was surreal, overwhelming. You know, I think that, that thing only weighs like four or five ounces, but it, it feels it feels like a ton. And uh, I, st- I don't know if I'll ever get used to, to wearing it, to be honest with you. So give us give us a little bit of a sneak peek into the ceremony. So, you know, a lot of us got to watch it live on TV as the president put the medal on you. Uh, what was something that we we may have missed if we weren't there in person? Um, well, I mean, we, we did get to spend some time one on one with the president before the ceremony, which uh, was was awesome to meet the president's one thing, but to have him sitting there interacting with your family, joking with your kids and your wife was surreal. <laughs> And then I guess the actual ceremony itself, just the, you know, I was up there kind of trying to process it, but the, uh, to look down and, and see all my, my peers and, and uh, soldiers that I, I work with and, and see like, you know, real raw emotion, um, you know, profound emotional experience for them really kind of added a lot to it for me to, to see how much it meant to them was uh, a profound moment for me. That's uh, super cool. Uh, you know, at the, at the media day, uh, prior, it was um, it was pretty cool to meet uh, retired uh, Sergeant Major Tony Bell, your previous uh, yeah. Sergeant Major. I told him if I could just bottle your energy up just a touch, you know, and just keep you in my pocket uh, for when I need a little energy, a little motivation. Um, I, you know, I do that in a heartbeat. You know, he gave a lot of the, a lot of interviews as well for you and told the story. And what what did it mean to have him there, part of this? Uh, have Task Force Tony be there? I mean, that was one of, that was my, uh, <laughs> that was my first uh, NCO in the army that I really, I wanted to be like, even to this day, I still reference uh, my decisions and behavior based off of, of lessons that, that he taught me. And, uh, you know, to, to have him there. Yeah. really put the, put the cherry on the, <laughs> on the cake. He really adds a, a, a lot of excitement to any situation he's involved in. <laughs> Yeah, he was definitely excited. Uh, some of the interactions with some of the media was uh, 
was kind of entertaining to watch, but uh, no, it was, it was great. I just wanted to bring him up because, because uh, you know, I think having him there uh, to kind of help tell that story uh, on your behalf was, was pretty cool. Yeah, well, always, if you're telling a story, having a, a consummate storyteller uh, definitely helps. No, people are engaged when he talks. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was cool to watch. So, you know, you got the, you got the award, but let's back up just a little bit. I'm interested in kind of when you first found out and, and you, you kind of told the team and others around you, your family, kind of what, how did those conversations go and, and uh, how did folks react? You know, we, we've heard, you know, whispers and, and, and rumors for years that it's being reevaluated, um, that they're taking another look. So we, we were really kind of immune to it down here because it had been almost a continuous conversation since 2014. So there's always, it was always just around the corner. And so everybody was kind of expecting it, but um, you know, when you, when you put that many years into waiting on it, we weren't really holding our breath. Um, and that was until the Pentagon office reached out Samantha Youngblood to make sure they had the, the right phone number. She, you know, said that they were going to be needing to be in touch with me when that kind of, you know, brought it home that this thing is, is going to happen. Uh, they still didn't really tell me what it was about. Um, but, but, you know, even though I, I had reasonable suspicions and, uh, and then right before my team was taking off for a, uh, an operation, <clears throat> they picked a day and, and the president was going to call me. A lot of people don't know this. He, he didn't call me. I called him. They called a week out, two days out, one day out. And, you know, in 24 hours, you're going to receive a very important phone call, make sure that everything's good. And, uh, so I, I walk out, get the cell phone signal and, and, uh, I light up a cigar and I, I, everything's fine. And about 20 minutes until the phone call is supposed to happen, they had a, an accident on post and we lost our cell phone coverage for most of the post. <laughs> wow. I, I hopped in my car and uh, was driving around post, holding my phone up, looking for a, a couple bars of signal. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, I got it over at our hospital uh, just in time. But when the, the call came in, for whatever reason, it sent it straight to voicemail. I didn't really know what to do. So I just called that number back and it, it said White House, uh, U.S. government. <laughs> that went back to the the White House uh, call center and White House, how can we help you? And I said, I, I missed a call from this number. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, sir, I'm, I'm sure you were spoofed. And I said, well, I was expecting one. So maybe, maybe not. And uh, they asked me my name and and said, you know, stand by for the president of the United States and, and uh I beeped in and he answered on the second ring. <laughs> wow. The, uh, those poor staffers were probably like, man, all of that work. Yeah. Unbelievable. Damn. We've been telling this guy for a month not to mess this up. And, and, uh, <laughs> but it, it worked out good. And anyway, he, he called and pretty excited and, uh, to talk to me and told me he was going to have me out to the white house to, uh, present me with the medal of honor. And, uh, I drove back to work and we, we finished packing in the rain and uh, we, we took off. <laughs> wow. Standard, standard day, huh? Yeah. Pretty normal stuff around here. That's a pretty cool story. Um, so you mentioned in some of the interviews that receiving the medal was not just for your actions. Obviously it was for your actions, but uh, it was representative of your teammates who were there with you on the ground in Gosney, uh, the SF regiment more broadly. Can you unpack that just a little bit for us? Yeah. I mean, I would say uh, uh, they're not doubting my mind that, you know, boy, one of those rounds that went past me and, and hit Drew or, or Nate, one of those could have just hit me in the in the face and killed me and there wouldn't have been no medal. 
And if I'd been wounded, there's not a doubt in my mind that uh, those guys that weren't would have, uh, you know, fought tooth and nail to, to get me to a safe place. So when, when you're in that kind of company, when it's really just a, uh, a bouncing of the dice on who's lucky enough to uh, con- continue that fight, it's hard to not be kind of humble when you're the one that it's chosen to be honored for that uh, particular engagement. You know, secondly, uh, Green Berets die in heroic ways all the time. But if you got, you know, 15 illiterate uh, Afghan local police as the witness, uh, well, that doesn't really cut the mustard for for any kind of uh, awards, you know, after after you're honored at Arlington. So knowing those things and having seen things like that, that that medal definitely belongs to uh, to the regiment. I mean, there's a, there's a reason that there's, you know, the saying like in the company of heroes, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's a whole lot of uh, special folks in this, in this organization. That's definitely not a metaphor. Look, if there's one word to describe you based on our short interactions and everything I've heard about you, it, it would be humble. Uh, but you're also incredibly experienced history of meeting challenges head on. I mean, you're a former Marine special operator who said that wasn't enough. So you know, you went into uh, SFAS, became, you know, went to the Q course and became a Green Beret. What drives you as an individual? What drives Earl Plumley? I, I mean, I guess I always want to master a thing. Uh, and once I kind of latched on to being in the professional arms, well, I wanted I wanted to perfect it and I wanted to go and, and work with uh, people at a higher level. And uh, whenever I see somebody doing something better than me, I I go hop on on board with them and, and, and learn how they're doing it. Nice. Were you the youngest child? <laughs> no, I was the uh, I was the oldest. Ah, okay. So you set. I mean, you set the standard then. Well, I try. All right. I've heard you tell the story a little bit, but could you unpack a little bit more about changing over from Force Recon oh, was, Marines yeah, to, no, to Green Berets? It was two things. Um, well, I guess it was a it was a confluence of things. I was in. At a time as the force reconnaissance companies were were being uh, rebranded and reflagged as MARSOC, and we kind of heard that they weren't going to really be operational for two or three years, and they didn't have a mission letter and they didn't have authorities. They just had this general concept of what they would do. You know, at that time in my career, somebody really gave me a class on on um, mission and authorities, and uh, he spelled it out to me He's like, if you want to be a, an a elite soldier uh, or an elite warrior on a, in a conventional level, then the Marine Corps is, is the preeminent uh, infantry unit in the world. And you're, and you're, you did it. If you want to work, you know, special operations and, and uh, drive around dune buggies and shoot miniguns, then you need to go to the army because that is the proponent that, that, uh, you know, runs special operations. And that's, that's the home for that. And, uh, you know, I kind of decided that that's, you know, after seeing some ODAs, you know, doing that, in Iraq, I was like, that looks a lot funner than, uh, you know, driving up and down this road to make sure there, there's no IEDs on it. And I also had, uh, you know, a rough plan that I joined the army and, and flying little birds. And, uh, but once I got on an ODA, it was just, I was having so much fun. I, I don't see a way I could ever leave. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, you joined the Green Berets, you've been on ODAs for a number of years now within first group. What, uh, what has that experience been like? How would you describe it? You know, what, what's it like to be part of a, a small team like that? It's the best way to work. I've worked in our 4th our Battalion, uh, in our Jetbird Company, and I've, I've served in our CRIF. And uh, I've been on free fall ODAs, and I've been on, you know, mobility ODAs. All of them, I, I would say, equally fun. And then being around people 
that, uh, you, you know, you don't have to tell them what to do, you know, just you know, write down a few things for them to think about through the day as they just, you know, locate, close with and, and destroy work. Um, is it's just the best environment uh, that you can be in. Um, all of our family friends are people that I've served on an ODA with, and it's just a, a super tight knit community. It's always looking out for itself. And, uh, you know, when it, if I'm gone and, and the kitchen sink gets uh, clogged up, you know, my wife doesn't have to call a plumber. She's got, you know, two or three green berets. It'll be over there uh, getting <laughs> that fixed. And, you know, to have that kind of network and to work with those kind of people, I, you know, there's a reason why guys cry when they retire because this is as good as it gets. No, that's awesome. What is it? You mentioned uh, driving doom buggies and shooting miniguns, but what about the partnership part of it? I'm just wondering, you know, because first group, right? First in Asia, a lot of time probably spent working um, when you weren't in, in the Middle East. Can you speak on that at all? Well, I, I guess another thing that really, te- you know, tethered me into the soft is uh, as a force recon Marine in the, the early days of Iraq, we, we went after uh, and eliminated a ton of the uh, upper and uh, middle al-Qaeda personalities and I went back a few years later and that network was still in tatters and I was like that's like I always want to have a job where I have that kind of effect in the world you know being here at the pointy end of of the U.S. government's foreign policy and then you know plugging into the the country we're trying to have effects with and, and working on the ground with another country's government and actually creating something is also incredibly rewarding you know I like to you always know, say you know leave something better than you found it it's Pretty fulfilling uh, to look back over your career and and, and seeing uh, uh, that a country had a problem, and then two, ten years later, like we fixed it. That they don't have that problem, and we're we're fixing a different problem now. And uh, to be able to do that, you know, with with a country is is uh, extremely rewarding. I want to shift gears just a bit and ask you about culture. From you know, you're a team sergeant now, and kind of the. Uh, what a lot of folks would say is kind of the pinnacle, right, of, of a, a Green Beret and really setting the culture of the team. What is it that creates a culture on a team and what kind of culture do you want to instill or are you instilling? So the team sergeant absolutely controls the culture of an ODA. So, you know, if a, if a team has a, a good culture or a bad culture, there's, you know, that's the guy that, that either fixed it or ruined it. My culture is, you know, we're going to do, you know, good work. Always be proud to to show some show another uh, unit the work we did. You know, always be able to to point like I did that, and not have to duck your head when somebody's asking about a, a product or a job you did. And then uh, you know, have fun when the work's over, and, uh, and kind of embrace uh, one of our embrace physical fitness and, and 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 chase perfection as a team culture. And uh, you can do all those things, um, do good work be thought of as professionals and, and still have fun. Awesome. I hear you say f- having fun a lot. I, I wish I well, could be on your team. That's, uh, it sounds like a great place to work. <laughs> I had a, I had a boss and he told me something that kind of stuck with me. And I always use that as my, my metric. He's like, they don't pay us enough to stay around here if you're, if you're not having fun. So the, the first day you get in your truck and you're not excited about driving to work, do yourself and do the unit a favor and don't like get out of here. That's a great point. Hey, so what does the future hold for you? Well, I'm, I'm going to keep driving on with my, uh, my team starting time when I finish that, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll figure that out when it happens, but nobody's, nobody's making me leave my team right now. And, uh, I, I like to think I'm doing a pretty good job. So they should let me uh, run it for a little bit longer. 
Was that a, a somewhat of a hard conversation or was it pretty simple? Like, hey, I, you know, hey, I want to I want to stay on this team. And it was like, oh, yeah, you can do that. Or, you know, what was that conversation like? You know, so this is uh, this is my first time getting the Medal of Honor. So we're still trying to figure out what that means. We had no expectations really of, of what that would entail, because you always hear the rumor where, you know, you can't deploy anymore. And there's these unwritten laws that you have to, uh, you know, go get put in a glass case somewhere so somebody can look at you. We haven't found those written down anywhere. So until somebody can find them, I, I guess they were just going to let me work and um, continue to do my job. You know, if, if something comes up where they need me to to go do something else, I guess we'll, we'll cross that bridge when it happens. It seems to be, uh, you know, a little bit of a pattern. Our last Medal of Honor recipient, Matt Williams, I think did a very similar thing. And uh, he's still he's still getting after it around here on Fort Bragg and uh, still working hard. So that's, uh, that's good to see. Um, speaking of Matt and, and maybe some of the other recent Medal of Honor uh, recipients, Pat Payne, you know, has, has this started a relationship there? Like, you know, do you, do you get some kind of Medal of Honor mentorship or like what, so, what, kind of, what is that relationship yeah, I mean, like? Every time I have a question about something, I call one of those guys. I guess uh, you know, Matt Williams. I, I would would say is my my mentor for how how to do this. So it, yeah, anytime something pops up, I always jump on the phone and ask him. You know how he did that. So I'm I'm fairly lucky in that, that he already figured out all the all the wrong ways, and he can tell me the right way. No, that's good. You're 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 in some great company. Look, I understand you're you're keenly interested, guys, as you do kind of do some outreach, right? And, and, and use the platform for good. I know you're interested in going back to Oklahoma for some of those events. What, what does your hometown mean to you? And uh, what will it mean to go back as Medal of Honor recipient for Oklahoma? Well, so I've gone back to my hometown a couple of times, Merritt, Oklahoma, um, mostly to support recruiting because, you know, every mother, her dream is not for her child to end up in the military because uh, they they always expect some worst case scenario. And, and for most families, the only thing they know about the military is probably, you know, a movie they have once seen and, and uh, which doesn't always display service in a, a good light or even a, uh, a real light. It's always some horrific battle and nobody has legs at the end of the movie. And uh, I like to go, you know, okay, the, there's, there's tons of jobs. You, you don't have to be a, a landmine finder. There's there's tons of career opportunities in the military that are astoundingly better than than the average for for my hometown, and and maybe they don't make a career out of it, but um, you know get out get out of here, go have an adventure, and uh, and come home because you know you're going to have um, more to offer having served than you're going to have um, hanging out here. Uh, the, the industry around where I grew up is is pretty sparse. You can you can work on somebody else's farm or uh, ranch, or you can work in the oil field, which is uh, you know incredibly uh, unreliable as far as a career because uh, it's based on the price of oil. So I always want to to serve as an example of you know somebody that's been successful in the military, kind of allay some of those fears. Like if your son's going to serve as a dental tech, like he's going to be fine. He'll, he'll go do that and he'll come back and, and your whole family is going to be better off for it. Um, and if you are going to go to college, you know, having a little bit of a little, a few more years under your belt uh, can't hurt. And then not having that financial burden is a huge deal for, for most of Oklahoma, which is, you know, is, is a very low median income. So coming back at, at, with the, the medal of honor on will be a little different. And instead of just old Earl coming back, I, I, be kind of a celebrity 
I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't think it's going to be that big of an effect because my, uh, my class reunion is usually at the, the local Walmart because there's only uh, 14 of us. Uh, so it's kind of, I think it'd be kind of hard to be overwhelmed in that uh, environment. Well, look, I, you know, getting to go back to, uh, to your hometown and, and give back is special. And I hope, you know, that this just gives a little bit uh, extra meaning, meaning to that for the next time when it comes up. So glad you're getting to do that. Coming to the end of this uh, this conversation, what else do would you want people to know about you or your actions, about the medal, about the regiment, any of that? I guess that you know, there's always. I guess everybody has this expectation that I'm uh, uh, some profound person or I have some uh, exceptional insight, and I, I don't. And and I, if I'm exceptional, it's just because of the the people I serve with are also, and uh, you know, I'm, say I'm a, a pretty average green beret in the, the special forces regiment uh i don't think there's anything particularly uh, spectacular about me <laughs> that caused me to, to be where i'm at today you know something that people always want to know is you know how you know did i personally uh succeed uh on that day in that that battle and i, I didn't i don't think that i personally succeeded i would i would say i was successful because of you know the uh not even out months of of intensive time and money that was invested in me by the first special forces group, you know, making me a a, a lethal weapon on the battlefield. And I, I just executed that day as I was trained and invested in, you know, schools like Sephardic and then the the unit training like Sephalic, uh caused us to be successful on that day. Uh, and that's that's just when you invest that kind of time and in, in, uh, treasure into a soldier, you get um, those kind of products back. Well, it sounds like a lot of hard work and, uh, you know, some humility for sure. So look, Earl, great, great uh, having you on to the Indigenous Approach podcast. I'm glad we got to have this conversation. I got to see you again. And uh, we wish you the best of luck as you, uh, you know, go out the door at some point soon to to continue doing work as a team sergeant on an ODA in, uh, you know, the first in Asia uh, group. So uh, we wish you the best of luck. And thanks again for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been The Indigenous Approach. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on social media. And if you have suggestions for topics or guests, send us a message. Thank you for listening.